I've been writing about this since 2012, and it's just gotten worse every single year. Beth Macy is the best-selling author of Dope Sick and Raising Lazarus, both books about America's opioid epidemic and the people experiencing it firsthand. Dope Sick was turned into a Hulu miniseries in 2021, starring Michael Keaton. Less than 1% of people get addicted to OxyContin. That's not possible. Purdue Pharma has been marketing the drug. It's not addictive when it clearly is. Macy has been writing about this topic since 2012. Each year, the problem continues to get worse. In the time I wrote Raising Lazarus, I quoted a survey saying a third of American families experience strife because of the opioid crisis. That's now, just in two years, that figure is two-thirds. So only a third of Americans remain untouched. The face of the opioid crisis is Richard Sackler, who, along with his family, headed Purdue Pharma. Purdue Pharma was the pharmaceutical company responsible for OxyContin, the opioid painkiller which was aggressively marketed as a non-addictive miracle drug. The company denied responsibility for any of the more than 600,000 overdose deaths over the last two decades. Throughout the early 2000s, Purdue Pharma marketed that opioids were addictive in less than 1% of users, based on two studies from the early 1980s. Further studies have shown that figure to be anywhere from 3% to 45%. On December 4th, 2023, the Supreme Court heard arguments on a $6 billion settlement that the Sacklers would pay to family members of opioid abuse victims. This morning in case 23-124, Harrington versus Purdue Pharma. Mr. Gannon. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. However, the settlement would also grant the Sackler family immunity from further legal liability. Families of the dead gathered outside the Supreme Court to protest the settlement. While the majority of victims, more than 60,000, support the deal. And this all started with a, um, a prescription pad, literally. If you peel it back, that's how it got started. And so I think the government, who let Purdue and other pharma corporations run roughshod over the nation, like, they need to make them pay. People start to understand who the real criminals are in this. It's not your cousin who worked at Subway who's now in jail for possessing heroin or fentanyl. It, it's, it's Richard Sackler who started all this. Many opioid victims began with prescription pills before turning to street drugs like heroin. Some newspapers have dedicated entire sections to the opioid crisis. The Dallas Morning News ran a 30-day series on fentanyl called Deadly Fake, shedding light on the issue's grip on the North Texas community. But many news stories are missing out on the most relevant sources, those closest to the carnage. In a 2020 study from the Journal of Applied Communications, only 7% of news stories examined used former or current illicit opioid users as sources, and only 5% cited opioid users' family and friends. People don't want to look until it slams them in the family, too. And then it's like, holy crap, how did we get here? I haven't been paying any attention. Addiction isn't a faceless story. It's a human one. This is just one of countless stories of addiction, loss, and unconditional love. I'm Jack Moraglia. Hello, I'm Ellie Smith and my uncle, his name was Randy, he died from an overdose when I was five. And 
we have a lot of things in common. Me and him both liked cats. We both loved reading. And so now I'm going to read some names that also died from an overdose. Ryan C., Emma Sophia Garza, Statins. On a windy August day, dozens gathered at Denton's North Texas Overdose Awareness Day. Organizations shared resources with the community, and people shared firsthand stories of opioid use and addiction. The last time I was arrested, uh, I had a, my attorney come talk to me about drug court, and they got me in the program, so it saved my life. Uh, I've been sober now like two years. Some had been addicts themselves, some lost family members, some went through both. I'm glad I'm sober now because a month ago we got a call that my brother uh, OD'd on fentanyl and uh, he didn't make it. He was a recovering addict as well. He had, he had been sober longer than me, probably three years, had two beautiful kids. And, uh, Every five minutes a bell would ring, signaling another life lost to overdose. Many people prayed or expressed the power of God in fighting addiction. So we pray for the strength for all of us here tonight to choose courageous love again and again and to continue the good fight. One was a pastor and an addict himself. I was in and out of jail and prison, alcohol addiction, broken family. Not only was I stuck in that, but my sister was following me. And I woke up to my sister overdose from a heroin and a cocaine addiction. I ended up in jail that day, uh, caught my first felony drug possession charge. It was emotional standing there on the lawn as the stories got deeper, more personal. I've never shared this with anybody. In November, five months after my daughter died, I went back to the apartment complex where my daughter was. I looked behind me, and there was a, a female and a man that were standing there. I walked up to them and I said, do you see that apartment door right there? My daughter died right there. And the girl goes, how? I said, fentanyl. And she goes, we're both addicts. I said, if I could get you the help, would you go? And she said, yes, I would. The girl, she ended up going to jail. Her grandma calls me. She says, hey, Caitlin's in jail right now. She wants to know where you go visit her. This is he visited Caitlin for five months on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Eventually, when she got out of jail, he and Caitlin's grandmother got her into a treatment center. I shared that with the detective about what I did. And he said, Mr. Alvarez, I got something to tell you. He said, you're not going to be happy. He said, she was in the room with your daughter when she died. But I'm going to tell you something right here. Her life is just as important as my daughter's is. And if we think anything less, this is all worth nothing. She's just as equally as important to God as my daughter is to me. Everyone was encouraged to take free Narcan, the life-saving drug that can reverse an overdose. It goes for $44.99 at the Kroger down the street from the event. If you need it, if you don't need it, and just want to have it, take it from this event. It's one of the most valuable things we can offer here. Ellie Catherine Smith, Cassidy. whose voice you heard earlier, 11 years old, Connor read out Kendrick. names and ages of the Josh dead. Barry. Her mother Barry took over Miller. after about 30 seconds. Rebecca, 17. Kylie, 24. John, 29. The names continued. 20. Bubba, 24. Travis, 20. For five and a half more minutes. Harold, 18. That's too many names. That's too many names. These overdoses have destroyed tons of families. So now we will crack our glow sticks in honor of these people 
who had to suffer a death that they did not deserve. Thank you. During the event, I met Rose Clark. Her daughter Catherine had died of an accidental fentanyl overdose in 2017 at the age of 24. But um, Catherine was an artist. She was, she was an incredibly uh, brilliant, super intelligent human. Her mind didn't work like everybody else. She was raising awareness about Texas House Bill 1694, also known as the Jessica Sosa Act. If the person's a victim of an overdose, anything like that where you would normally get in trouble. The law protects people who report an overdose in certain situations. It's of particular importance to Rose because the person Catherine was with left her, abandoned in an alley. He didn't call 911 for 12 hours. But if you call, then you can protect yourself, you know, because you got somebody help and you saved their lives. I asked Rose to explain her story to me in a quieter setting. The Good Samaritan law was passed in almost every one of our states a while ago. This house bill is not the greatest thing. It's a start, but it's not that broad. Like you can't, you can only do it so many times and it's more. The law was enacted in 2021. You can be protected from prosecution if you call 911, stay on the scene, and cooperate with medical and law enforcement personnel. But here's the catch. The defense is not available if you're committing another crime, you have been previously convicted of a drug-related crime, or acquitted using this law, or if you have called to report an overdose at any time in the last 18 months. So if one of these limitations applies to you and you're watching someone overdose, you're put in a bind. Beth Macy had told me about a similar act in Virginia. The act's first installment came with its own similar shortcomings. Virginia started its first 911 Good Samaritan law around 2015, but it had a lot of loopholes in it. So it wasn't until just a few years back that Ginny Lovett, who founded the harm reduction group in Northern Virginia in honor of her overdose brother, Christopher Atwood, she helped get the law changed so that there weren't any loopholes. Because if there's loopholes, people are still going to be afraid. But I still want them to be educated in it and, and for people to be educated more than anything in it because then they know that, hey, if I call and get help, it's going to be okay. I'm not going to get in this huge amount of trouble, you know, or, or any at all. It just depends on the situation, you know, but so many people don't know about it. Rose runs a Facebook group dedicated to her daughter called For the Love of Catherine. Pictures of Catherine and videos of her children flood the page. That's Rose's son, Casey, singing. Pub came in and gave me my yearbook, and that's it. That's Ava, Catherine's daughter. That's Austin, Catherine's son. Rose is raising both of them. Rose also works in a job you might not expect from a harm reduction advocate. She's a police officer. I think I humanize the badge in a certain way. I'm a police officer and my daughter was an addict, you know, and she died from an overdose. I think I have a great position to be able to spread this kind of message. As a teenager, Catherine was creative, thoughtful, and smart. She was a straight-A student, and then she started getting into 
high school and then things kind of changed. She became very social, started messing around with drinking a little bit, smoking some weed, things like that. Music really helped her. She wrote a lot. She wrote a lot of deep stuff in her journals, which I have access to now. Of course, I don't think she'd be that happy about it, but I, I'm grateful for them. <laughs> She just loved music. She listened to it all the time. I still remember in high school making me blare Paramore, you know, super loud. And I mean, music just kind of soothed her, I think. It really just helped her and, and, and writing just really helped to calm her mind. She just had a lot of deep, deep thoughts. And um, she was very complicated, but at the same time, just a, a neat, a really cool human. Her drug lifespan was very short compared to a lot of people that have been using it for years. Like she got addicted in 2016 and by 2017, the end of 2017, you know, she, she and her life was done. At around 15 years old, she was diagnosed with bipolar. Bipolar disorder caused Catherine to go through vibrant highs and crushing lows throughout the day. She just couldn't control herself. She would just say these things that were horrible. You know, the whole family would be devastated, and then suddenly she'd walk down and be like, is it time for sushi now? I mean, like, with no regard, you know, we're all just sitting here like, what? <laughs> it was just her brain and the way it worked. It was hard for Rose to understand her daughter completely. What she was going through was so foreign to her. I didn't know enough about mental health. When I grew up, we didn't really deal with mental health. We never really took the time to even see if there was issues going on with yourself. You just didn't do that. But if Kathy had a little bit of alcohol or something like that, exasperated her mental health stuff. It would just make things 10 times worse. Like, she was over the top. Like many teenagers, Catherine tested the boundaries, creeping toward and falling over their edges frequently. I would pick her up from my friends and they would be like covered in perfume slash cigarette smoke. And I'd be like, were you smoking? You know? And it would be like, no, no, you know, that kind of stuff. Coming in through the dog door when, when I would like to say, you need to be home by this time. And then I would lock all the doors and I would wait there in her living room for it. And then she'd be crawling through the dog door. A little bit of a wild child at the time. So it was a, it was a lot to keep up with. I was married to Catherine's father and the father of all my children for 17 years. And then kind of when they were teenagers, things sort of fell apart. So that kind of played a role in some of Catherine's rebellion and newfound freedom. I remarried later on, who is my wife now. It's been 12 years. When Catherine got pregnant with her daughter, Ava, at 18, Rose saw her daughter going down the same difficult path she had. At the time, I was obviously like, oh my gosh, because like, I was, a, I had had Catherine at 18, you know, and I had all my kids really young and I wanted her to be able to have a less struggling life. It felt like a saving grace in a certain way, even though she was young, she really embraced being a mother. We got closer again. I felt like she felt like there was somebody in there that would love her unconditionally. She would lose a lot of people in her life because she didn't mean to like say these things, but they would just come out. Some people would say she was hard to love, not for me, but for in relationships and things like that, just because of how complex she was. And so she knew with me that I would always have unconditional love and be there for her. So she could say a lot of kind of crappy things to me and knowing that I would still be there. I was kind of like her outlet. And then she'd write me these letters like, I'm, I'm sorry, I take everything out on you. I love you, you know, that kind of thing. So when she got pregnant and stuff, we just kind of had a really special time together. Yeah, maybe, um, maybe she understood you better once she was a mom, because maybe she yeah. was like, oh, this is what it's like. <laughs> this is right. A little bit more reality check. When she had Ava, just, I mean, she fell in love with that kid was her, her life. She was just an awesome mom and doted on her, and, and that was just everything for her. Catherine and Ava's father split up shortly after Ava was born. She met this other guy who was a drug dealer, mostly weed and pills. Then suddenly, Catherine was acting completely different. 
being very short, sleeping all day, staying up at night. So that's kind of how Catherine started to get into more drugs per se. You know, I don't really consider marijuana, even though it is, you know what I mean? It's, I'm talking about synthetic drugs, like pills, Adderall, Vyvanse, and then maybe some other types of pills, but I'm not sure. Did you know that at the time or did you sort of find it out later? I started to have suspicions just based on Catherine's moods and things because I could definitely tell when she was, you know, doing something that would change her and alter her mood. But then they moved together to an apartment and then the place was trashed and she was like be sleeping in the middle of the day when I'd come over there. So I wanted to keep my granddaughter with me just while Catherine figured things out. But, you know, Catherine was like, you're not taking my kid, you know, very just angry and frustrated and then they got evicted and she called me and told me that she was pregnant again and I was like no (laughs) you know because at the time she just wasn't doing great it was just kind of going downhill so I, I brought her to live with me. Catherine's second pregnancy acted as a respite in her drug use a break in the chaos as Catherine kept her body clean for her baby her and her mother got close again. She stopped everything again when she was pregnant, which was awesome because I got to have my daughter back again. And she was very careful, really took care of herself as, you know, being pregnant. And she worked here at a local diner and had her baby out here. And I graduated the academy and she was there when I got pinned by the city that I was working for. And then her son, Austin, was born. During that time, Catherine was communicating with Austin's father through jail letters. I'm not 100% sure, but I think she bailed him out of jail she told me, well, we're moving out. We want to be a family. Of course, I was stressed out about that. I didn't want that to happen. I wanted her to leave the kids with me at least while she tried to figure out. They moved into like a very uh, small efficiency, like a one bedroom place together. And then both the kids went to live with her. I started noticing there was foil on the windows and dark curtains and he was always laying down in bed like it was kind of a seedy environment and I started to question things but if I ever tried to kind of ask a little bit too much it was kind of shut down quickly (laughs) and Catherine's mental health seemed to be really bad I'm like are you not taking your meds like what's up because she'd just be like in a good mood and then suddenly you know everything was just horrible and 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 she was verbally abusive to me and things like that and I, I I knew something was up, but I wasn't 100%. Rose got a call from Catherine that upended her life. It was um, the beginning of April, maybe, of 2016, when she said, "Um, I have something to tell you. And I'm like, well, tell me, you know, like, I still remember sitting in the bathroom and she said, I've been addicted for 10 months. And I was like, what? Like, I was naming off all the drugs that I could think of, you know, and she's like, I've been... I've been addicted to heroin for 10 months. And I said, what? Like that to me as a mother was just like the worst thing that I could possibly think of my kid being. It just sounded so hardcore, even though I wasn't like super familiar with the drug. I knew it was bad. What had happened was why they were living in that little efficiency, the neighbors were heroin addicts. And Austin's father helped her put the needle in her arm for the first time. And that's when it switched. The whole game switched from just, you know, fun little drug, you know, whatever, to now now we're shooting heroin. When you use any opioid for a sustained period of time, your body develops a tolerance and dependency. Try and quit the drug, and your body will respond by becoming incredibly sick. Dope sick. It's so addictive. It's so, and basically you just end up having to use it for maintenance, you know, which is kind of where she had gotten. She had run out of all of her money. Like, I think she used her tax returns for it still holding jobs down 
some of them were daycares because that way her kids could be in the daycare, you know, and then, but you know, you can only maintain a life for so long before things start falling apart. And so I think she had run out of money and she was super dope sick, like horribly dope sick. She sounded horrible on the phone. I should have asked more questions. I should have realized she looked pale. She looked different things. I just kept thinking it was her mental health and like not taking care of herself. And I just never imagined that she would have gone to that to that level. You know, at this point she had no money, no job, no nothing. And um, she was very sick. So she called me and she's like, I need help. That day I, I, I drove, what, well, she lived about two hours away or, and I just drove out there and I was able to get her into a rehab. When she's that dope sick, it was a battle just to even get her shoes on, to try to get her to the car, to then when we get there, talking her into still going into the facility. I gotta get her in. If she gets in, you know, it's gonna be okay, you know? And then even every hour that they were asking her questions and then she'd be like, I'm, I'm gonna fucking leave here. You know, I'm just like, whatever. Cause she's agitated, she's unwell, she needs a fix. And I just kept being like, please, 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 you know, just get her in. Rehab brought back the Catherine Rose longed for underneath all the drug use and addiction. Just little by little, it was just amazing to see the transformation that was going on. I'd bring the kids to see her. Her light was coming back in her eyes and she just looked beautiful and was healthy. I still remember holding hands together in one of the therapy sessions and her putting her head on my shoulder. So sweet to me, like that's the best time that we had together in, in a long time, since she was younger. Catherine completed 90 days of sobriety in rehab and moved into a sober house as her next step in recovery. She started hanging out with a new guy, a recovering meth addict. I was apprehensive because I was like, who is this guy? Where did you meet him? Like, I'm just, she spent a couple, a little bit of time with him. And then she still agreed to go to the sober house. So I was like, okay, maybe everything's fine. You know, it was uh, shortly after, I guess, the guy that she had been hanging out with was also, he was a, a meth addict and uh, supposedly in recovery, but she started using again, but now she kind of went more in the meth direction. The crowd that she started hanging out with, with mostly meth users, um, and then they would use like GHB as like the counter. GHB, gamma hydroxybutyrate, is a sedative. Street names for the drug include liquid ecstasy, grievous bodily harm, and cherry meth. It's one of several drugs sometimes referred to as the date rape drug. It mellows you out so much to the point of almost sedation. Catherine acted differently on meth than on heroin. It was very hyper and all over the place and not making sense. So then basically that was out the window. She wasn't in the sober house anymore. And then she was just kind of bouncing around. I just was like, you, you did all of this work and now you're back into it. She was shooting heroin too. Um, it was just a nightmare for her and me. Like she would go back to rehab for a short time get out but then the times that she stayed her dad's I would find like the, the spoons and the in the the foil and the things and you know I could always tell when she was using because she had little like little marks on her arm like little bruise marks you know from where she had used Catherine lived for a time like a nomad traveling from place to place to get high finding a bed or couch to sleep on at night calling her mother to pick her up when she needed a ride she was kind of ended up sort of being homeless, right? Essentially, like not on, she always found like a motel to stay at or somebody's couch or like she never actually slept on the street, but you know, it was basically homeless. She'd call me all the time. I need a ride. She'd get out somewhere far, like wherever they decided to use and then not be able to get back. You know, I worked a full-time job too. So like, you just leave whenever I wanted to, you know, to get her. 
Rose only saw her daughter in the act of using once. It shocked both of them. She's like, I need you to pick me up. I don't have anybody. It's a bad area, whatever. So I drove all the way there. She's like, I'll be at this restaurant. So I go to the right re- and I see her stuff kind of sitting in the in the front of the foyer there. Like every time, every time I saw her, she had different stuff now. Like it was either stolen or given or she never had the same property ever. I walk in, I'm like, she must be in the bathroom. And I walk to the back there and, and she, I could tell she was starting to, to do it. And, and she just slammed the door in my face and like, get out, you know, so fast. I didn't really get a chance to, she didn't give me a chance. And I think she was just freaked out too, that I was probably seeing her like that, like, like actually using, cause I never actually saw her use ever, you know, in front of me, except for that time. I come out to the car and it was just like excruciating to get her into my car. And it was, I was so upset, so sad, but I was, I was angry too. And I was all the things as a mother, just because you feel desperate for her to be okay, to be alive. I I remember she was screaming at me and I'm like, get in the car, you know? And she's like, I'm going to tase you. You know, she had pulled out this taser that she had in her bag. Like she was just all over the place. I knew it wasn't her, but it was like the the closest thing I think that I came to being in a abusive relationship. I remember one time she was sitting behind me and she literally would, I wouldn't take her. She wanted me to take her to drop her off to a place where she was going to get high. And I was like, I'm not doing it, you know? And, um, so then she just grabbed me by the back of my hair and was like, I'm going to kill you, bitch. You know, just like all these things that you never heard come out of your child. And this is your child. And you're just like, and black, her eyes were black. Like, it was just not her. It was very heartbreaking to watch somebody that was your child, your daughter, not be the same person at all. And there's nothing you can do. Rose was losing both her daughter and her sanity. I finally stopped trying to get her to go to rehab. She went several times in and out, in and out. And I was like, if I'm going to have any relationship with her, I'm just going to have to take her as she is. And that's just how we are. Like, I'll meet up, pick her up get her some food. We're going to sit there and smoke a cigarette because that's what she wants to do. And she's just going to be talking all kinds of crazy nonsense. None of it makes sense. And I'm going to act like this is just normal mother daughter time. That was the, the the only thing that I could do at that point to not lose her because she, otherwise she would just like not talk to me for weeks or, or things like that. And it just, it would scare me, but I never gave up on her. And I always picked her up and I would take her to the store and get her like, okay, I need toiletries or I need, you know, whatever she needed, cigarettes some clothes, you know, whatever. It wasn't that I gave up inside. It was just that I didn't want to lose her completely. Catherine had a new nickname for Rose. She called me the narc mom because, you know, I'm a cop and, it, you know, she'd be like, you can't come around this year because, you know, she's such a narc and, you know, all the things. <laughs> um, now I laugh about it just because it was so, it was so intense, you know. The only thing that made her happy was the fact that I was going to drop her off at her next place where she was going to get high. And you could see the light kind of come into her eyes and her excitement and checking herself out in the mirror and putting her makeup on. And and to me, it was just madness, you know. But I hugged her and I loved her and I drove her to where she wanted to go. And, you know, it's kind of where we were at towards the end of the relationship. Catherine never stopped trying to be there for her children. Her addiction made it nearly impossible. She was trying to run, but was carrying sandbags. One of the things that happened right before she died was it was close to Thanksgiving. Her daughter was doing a performance and she wanted to be there for it. And I was like, don't get high that day. Just go to it, you know, and then get high later, whatever. You know, I mean, that's how I talk to her now. It was like, just don't get high right now. You know, I'm like, I'll pick you up. I'll take you to it. When I show up at this motel that she gives me, 
she doesn't come out. She doesn't come out. And I'm like texting her. She finally comes out. And she's so high, so high. I was like, I cannot take you to see her like this. Like I can't. And she's like, you're taking me. I promise her. She's so upset. And I take her to go get something to eat. And she just throws up. I said, I'm gonna pull over. I'm gonna let you sleep a little bit. But if you can't get it together, like I can't take you like this. I sat there and I just watched her sleep and I just watched her breathe for like an hour, making sure she was breathing. Like I just stared there. She kind of got it together enough that I was able to mask it and show up there when she got to kind of watch her. But I would look in the crowd and she was kind of nodding in and out. She got to see Ava dance that day, even if she wasn't all there. On December 4th, 2017, two weeks after Catherine died, Rose posted on Facebook, Catherine Clark, I'm going to your beautiful daughter's dance recital today. I know how much you would have wanted to be there. She will be loved, I promise. After the dance recital that Catherine attended, she made another promise to Ava, that she'd come to Thanksgiving. But this time, she didn't make it. Thanksgiving, she never showed up. So I was I was pissed at her because she had promised Ava. I think the last few words we exchanged were really crappy through text. Catherine and I will say goodbye to my kids and, you know, fuck you and whatever. And I said, fuck you too, which is horrible. But I was just so, so over it, you know, so sad and just frustrated. That Monday night, nine o'clock at night, I think, and I had missed a call from a homicide detective. And so I call him right away and he's like, I'm sorry to tell you this over the phone, you know, but is Catherine your daughter? And I'm like, yes. Uh, well, she's, she was found in an alley um, and she's deceased. And I was just like, <laughs> I don't even know what I did. Honestly, I can't, I can't really remember that good what happened after that because it was just such a shock. But I remember that he told me that this guy had picked her up. I message, I find this guy in her Facebook friends and I message him like through messenger and I'm like, were you with my daughter? And then he just starts spilling out everything that happened. So he said, yeah, Catherine was my friend. I asked me for a ride. I picked her up. She was really fucked up. Um, that's what he said. And he pulled over to his mom's house and just left her in the car and went into the house for hours. And when he came out, she was folded out, like sort of like she had tried to get out of the car type thing, kind of folded halfway out of the car. The door was open. She was out of, you know, and she was, he said she was dead. And so he put her back in the car and drove to a very remote alley. And then he covered her with the blanket and then waited 12 hours to call the police. He could have dumped her in front of an ER. He could have dumped her anywhere to where someone could have maybe possibly get her help because I don't know, you know, I'll never know if she would have lived. He said he panicked. Um, I don't know that she knew what she was taking at the time. It was fentanyl. It wasn't heroin, but you know, so I considered an accidental overdose. There wasn't much legally that could be done to the person who failed to call for help for Catherine. He was eventually charged with abuse of corpse, which occurs when someone disturbs, damages, or carries away a human body but Rose didn't want to go through a whole trial. As much as I hate what he did, I knew that he was also an addict and I didn't think that it was some sinister, like, you know, purposeful thing, even though it was horrible. Part of me felt for him because I had experienced all the addiction with my daughter. She was able to give an impact statement. Which was pretty powerful to me. I wrote it and I 
held her picture there for him to look at the whole time. And there I just talk about like all the things her kids are going to miss out on because if he didn't call for help, because, you know, he did these things, you know, and at the end of the whole impact statement, I said, I forgive you. I said, I believe that you panicked, you know, and that you did this because um, you were afraid. Um, but, you know, forgiveness is it, it was more for myself. You know, it's not forgetting. It's just remembering without anger. And um I have, I tend to have a lot more anger for the person that got her on the drugs in the first place, you know, than, than this, than this guy. Catherine's drug addiction and mental health struggle helped give Rose context and empathy in her job as a police officer. Just to have a, a better understanding of addiction and mental health and the correlation between the two, you know, and, and just having empathy for drug users. And so now even in my job, when I have to arrest an addict because they, they have a possession of it or there's something, you know, that I that I have to end up doing it. I talk to them and I share Catherine's story. Her her picture hangs in my patrol unit, you know, and I, and I carry these bracelets that say, for the love of Catherine, and I put one in their property. I've had people get sober that came out of the jail and have reached out to me years later and said, I remember when you talked to me and you had to arrest me that time. Especially I can think of this one girl. She's been sober for like five years. Jail is not the answer for addicts. Rose is the first person to say that. Beth Macy has seen the effects of jailing people with opioid use disorder throughout the country. We're still in the place where our primary way of dealing with OUD is to jail people. That is, it's easier to be jailed than it is to get treatment. We have an 87% treatment gap, which means only 13% of folks with OUD in the last year have managed to access evidence-based care. And we know that when people come out of jail, they're 40 times more likely to overdose and die, you know, because if they return to use, which most have because they haven't had treatment in jail, they now are getting a harder version or they're opioid naive. And if they return to use, they're more likely to overdose and die. Some jails are beginning to incorporate drug treatment programs to help the incarcerated overcome their addictions. Jail could be a real place where people start to experience both harm reduction and care and treatment. And, you know, so I profile one jail that started treating addiction differently. And instead of just letting people out, like a peer support specialist comes and meets them and they leave with Narcan and they get treatment in the jail and they leave with buprenorphine prescriptions and a real plan. As a police officer, Rose continues to educate people about Texas's Good Samaritan Law and the life-saving effects of Narcan. To just make it more normal to talk about these things, there's such a stigma with addicts, and it's okay to talk about it. We don't need to be ashamed. I'm not ashamed that, that Catherine, you know, I'm not ashamed to talk about her story. That was my kid, and I loved her, you know, and she. this is what she struggled with. So I use that as a platform to share that. Kids are getting dumped at parties, left at parties. Nobody's calling for help, you know, and they don't realize. So I think the more we educate people and our officers and everybody on, on Narcan and on calling for help is the bigger difference, you know, because people can be saved. The moms and sisters and other family members that seem to do the best are the ones that they don't want their loved one to have died in vain. And so they're out there fighting for treatment and for harm reduction. Some of the most cutting edge work is being done by mothers of the dead and sisters of the dead. And I see examples of that over and over in my reporting, including efforts to hold the Sacklers feet to the fire and to to demand justice. There's a parent named Ed Bish who started Relatives Against Purdue Pharma in 2001, and he's still in it every day, trying to 
make sure somebody goes to jail for this because he knows if no white collar criminals go to jail, the behavior continues. I carry Narcan. I've given it to some of our officers to carry because we don't, they don't just give it to us to carry, you know. Narcan was approved for over-the-counter sales in March of 2023. Texas Governor Greg Abbott announced in September that 60,000 units of Narcan would be distributed to law enforcement officers around the state to help aid overdose victims. Four months later, the Narcan has not made it to every officer. And I wish that we do. Some departments do. Um, currently, ours doesn't. but Because it's still not affordable. Even though I'm super glad that it's in all the pharmacies and things, it's still $50 a, a box, you know? And that's most people can't afford that, you know, in general, like especially addicts. In her grief, Rose fell into the trap of alcohol to numb her pain. Smoking and Adderall, too, offered false hope and temporary solace. I started to really understand my own addictions to alcohol, uh, nicotine, and Adderall. And I was outside, and I remember I made a video, in fact, and it's dark, but I'm just desperate in there. Got into some really bad habits. Um, I started smoking again. I sound horrible. I sound like a smoker. Like Before you know it, you know, by the end of the day, I've smoked an entire pack of cigarettes again. Well, it started to turn into a really just sad, bad place for me because when I would drink, I would get very, very sad about Catherine's death, you know, and I couldn't focus on any healing or all of her great life that she did have. I could just focus on all the sad and the bad and that she wasn't here. Suddenly, I'm just finding myself drinking till I pass out and smoking, and I really wasn't who I was at all. Um, and then, you know, taking Adderall to, to go be good for everybody the next day, you know, just more of like a fake, fake joy, you know, and um, I didn't have a quality of life at all. She leaned on her memory of Catherine to guide her through sobriety. Catherine, just help me, you know, figure this out. I'm, I really need to, I can't, I can't go on like this much longer. If you want me to, to live, Catherine, then I need you to step in and help me, like, help me figure this out because I don't want to live without you, you know? And I'm sorry, I get emotional about it because it was just, I was so desperate to figure it out because I knew I had to go on and I didn't want to live a miserable life, you know? And when I lost Catherine, I just lost all hope because I fought so hard for her, you know, and fought alongside with her. And just for it to end like that felt like just, fuck. <laughs> you know, sorry, my, I use bad words sometimes. But it felt like I lost all hope for life. In 2020, three years after Catherine's death, Rose knew she had to make a change. I stopped all drinking nicotine and all within like a, a month or two of each other. I just decided to start like a, a healing and health journey for myself because it was really the only way as a mother that I felt like I could survive. But I thought of my grandkids and my living children. I said, I have to find a way to make it through there. And also it was to honor Catherine because she always fought for her sobriety. She kept trying to go to rehab, kept trying to get sober. So with me being sober, I feel like it just honors her and I'm carrying on what she didn't get to you know, finish. I went vegan, and that was kind of what jump-started my, my journey. And I said, I, I'm just going to try to do something, one thing that's healthy for me. And then two weeks later, it didn't make any sense to drink. I'm like, I'm eating all this healthy food, and I'm still chugging whiskey every night. Like, that just doesn't make sense to me. And so it was more of one of these kind of epiphanies of, like, why am I doing that? So I just stopped from one day to the next, you know. I told my wife, I was like, I'm, not, I'm done drinking. I'm not doing it anymore. And it was more of a experiment to see if my life could improve by doing these things. And then three days later, well, nicotine has to go now too. I was vaping and, you know, so I just stopped that. Um, and it was, I think it was, it was hard. I tapered off of Adderall 
I have some non-negotiables for myself that I do every day. I started meditating and working out every morning and that's just been my routine. That's how I, I stay sober. The feeling of euphoria that I got when I quit all of those things at first was just like, can I bottle this up and give it to everybody? Everybody needs to know how great life is without these things. But then, you know, life happens too and you have to still deal with issues and things that come up that are hard. And But that's when you learn to deal with them sober and that's when the transformation happens. You have to feel those feelings, you know, because you have to feel to heal, really. It's not that it isn't so hard. I still miss my daughter so much. I, I still cry about her every day, but it's just more of not a despairing feeling, but more of, I just miss her, you know, I miss my kid. Now I'm not carrying her like this heavy weight of like sadness, but now I kind of carry her on the side cart, you know, and we're, we're going together on this journey. And that's how I really feel now. And I don't dwell on the loss. I dwell on all the memories that I'm making with her with, you know, by my side. Rose has channeled her free, sober life into helping others. I've also started a grief group, Collateral Beauties, because I did a lot of healing after I stopped drinking. I was able to do a lot of healing into processing and to find meaning in Catherine's death and in her life. Um, and so I try to offer now hope because I'm in a really good place now in my life of of acceptance and you know living life on life's terms and dealing with everything in a healthy way as opposed to numbing it. So what do we do with this information? Where do we go next? Maybe it starts with paying attention. And I think part of the reason, like it's just getting worse and worse, there is some fatigue around the issue. There's so much news. There's so much darkness right now. You can also support harm reduction policies, such as Good Samaritan laws, fentanyl test strips, Narcan distribution, and needle exchanges. Some harm reduction groups in the DFW area are DFW Harm Reduction Education Access Movement, or DREAM, and reacting to opioid overdose. I know it sounds initially counterintuitive if you haven't heard about giving drug users clean needles, but when you look at the data, people who visit needle exchanges are five times more likely to eventually get into treatment. I mean, the key is eventually, the thing that a harm reduction group does is they build these little bridges of trust because this is a population that's so stigmatized. Many of them are estranged from their families because of behaviors. They've been abandoned by every system that was supposed to help them. Many, like young Tess Henry that I wrote about in Dopesick, she ends up so abandoned, she's living in a, an abandoned minivan with her pimp and doing sex work in order not to be dope sick. I have this really cool letter of intention that she wrote when she was in rehab. It was actually October 7th of 2016. She said, um, letter of intention, I have a renewed sense of dedication to my sobriety and recovery. I know it will be a long winding road, but I am determined to persevere, practicing consistency and patience, realizing my self-worth and putting God above all else in my life. I will hopefully make better choices this time. Working on codependency will be my greatest challenge. However, the desire to be a healthy, independent woman and a loving mother will keep me on this path of recovery. I will stay open-minded and stay in treatment as long as it takes this time around. I will rework my steps thoroughly and honestly as if my life depends on it. Because, well, it does. My first time in treatment was one of the best decisions I ever made. This time I know it is possible and I have every intention of continued sobriety and helping other women. So I keep this and I read it often. 
because she just shows the desire of how much she really wanted to make it, you know? But um, I know that she fought for her sobriety and she loved her kids more than anything. And so those are the things that I carry on for her. Absolutely, yeah. Just because she never got to that place of a healthy lifestyle doesn't mean, you know, that she wasn't trying and, and that letter shows that. Yeah. Absolutely. I spoke to Rose on November 14th, five days before the six-year anniversary of Catherine's death. With the 19th coming up, do you know how you're going to spend that day? Is is it going to be anything different? or? When she first died, I used to drive back to the alley where she was dumped, and I would go put flowers on the curb where she died, supposedly. It was just very morbid and sad. <laughs> As I got sober, I started to like want to do, I would spend the day in nature. I'll usually always ask for it off work and just kind of spend the day, whether it's taking a walk or nature, doing a hike, something that's beautiful, putting flowers in the lake for her. Both of her kids will be with me this Sunday. For them, it's kind of a sensitive topic. I don't like to talk too much about her death. They don't, they're kind of in that phase, but um, so I'll probably just keep a candle lit for her and put some fresh flowers in here and I won't really have the day alone, which I usually do, but I'm going to relish in the fact that I have her two children with me, which were some of the the best parts of her. And, um, that's what I'm, that's what I'm going to find my comfort. It's hard because it just feels like six years. Is, I can't believe it's been six years. Um, I don't know where the time's gone, and, and it's gone fast, but yet it's gone slow, and so much has happened. Um, can't believe she's going to be 31, you know, and mostly it's just, you, I miss her. I miss her face, you know, seeing her, and I, I kissed her picture every single morning. Um, it's, uh, I know I'm, uh, I'm going to definitely be okay. It's just one of those things that you just have to kind of take in, okay, it's been another year, <laughs> you know, without seeing them, and that's that's the hard thing, but... I'm definitely grateful to have her children because they're an extension of her and they look just like her. And it's just like, oh my God. I get to look at my grandson's eyes every day and um, he says, I love you, Grandma. It's just like I feel her love coming through because he's got her eyes. And Ava is the spitting image of Catherine when she was young. So <laughs> I kind of get to have that again in a certain way. Special thank you to Rose Clark for sharing her story with me and with many others, and to Beth Macy for her time and the important reporting she does on the opioid epidemic. Links to harm reduction resources and references for this episode are available in the episode description. I'm Jack Moraglia. Thanks for listening. <laughs>